Um, one just can the members hear me all right? Yeah, okay. Okay, members, um, I'd like to invite you, I'd like to welcome you here uh, to the weekly meeting of the Euro Committee, which takes place on a Wednesday, um, on, to, on to the stakeholder event that we have tomorrow. Uh, we were court, um, and um, members seem to be um, online okay here. Um, okay, uh, I just want to ask members, could you just maybe turn off your, go on to mute, mute uh, button, please, because it's interfering with the um, signal. Okay. Um, and that'll cut out the back, uh, background noise. So if you have any questions during the course of the meeting, just uh, drop a wee WhatsApp into the uh, the group, the committee group that we have here, and I can and I can uh, note those and bring it in. Uh, the meeting will be recorded and broadcast online and indeed throughout Parliament buildings, and you can use the mobile devices so long as they're in airplane mode and muted. Uh, we don't have any apologies. Uh, and we don't have any chairperson's business. And um, item three is I want to refer to the draft minutes. Uh, the draft minutes are of the committee meeting of last week, the 10th of June. It's page six. Um, if members are okay with those draft minutes for me to sign them, could you just give us a thumbs up there or a nod or something like that? All right. Thank you. Uh, okay. And I'll, I'll get that, those signed when I'm back in Parliament Buildings again on uh, on Monday. Um, matters arising, item number four. Um, <clears throat> right, the Sea Fish Industry Coronavirus Fixed Cost Regulations NA 2021. I'd like to draw members' attention to this statutory rule in the tabled pack that has been laid by the Department on the 15th of June and is subject to affirmative resolution. The committee previously considered the SL1 for this legislation on the 10th of June, and the Department envisions that there has been no changes in the policy content. Um, can I ask members, are members okay this statutory instrument to refer to the examiner for statutory rules for scrutiny? Yeah. Um, okay, M members, uh, SL1 is the direct payments to farmers, controls and checks, coronavirus regulations, NA 2021. I want to refer members to this SL1, which has been included in the table pack and proposes a minor change to the percentage of on-the-spot checks that will be carried out on beneficiaries of the COVID-19 uh, compensation scheme. Um, the the percentage will change from one percent to not point five percent of the beneficiaries. Um, so are members okay that this SL one passes the next stage of the legislative process? Okay, okay, members. Um, we're going to move on now to item number five. We're going to have an oral evidence session uh, on the climate change bill uh, from the NA Environment Link. And I want to uh, refer members to the briefing from NAEL at page 16 of your pack. And I want to welcome by Starleaf, Malachi Campbell, the Senior Policy Officer, NA Environment Link. Members, can you just mute there if you aren't unmuted? Because <laughs> uh, there's some sort of interference happening here. Um, okay. There's still a bit of interference there going on, members. Um, okay. Um, okay, we'll just keep moving here. It might be okay. Um, so I want to welcome by Starleaf, um, Malky Campbell, Senior Policy Officer, uh, NA Environment Link, Phil Carson, Senior Policy Officer, RSPB, and Laura Neal, a lawyer from Friends of the Earth. 
And I'd like to invite the uh, representative to brief the committee. You're very welcome this afternoon. Thank you very much, Chair. I think the first thing I should do is just to double check that everybody can hear me okay. I can anyway. Great. Okay. Um, I think I should start by uh, introducing myself. Um, as you said, I'm Maliki Campbell, Senior Policy Officer with Northern Ireland Environment Link. And I'm joined today by Laura Neal, a Northern Ireland-based lawyer for Friends of the Earth, England, Wales and Northern Ireland, and Phil Carson, Senior Policy Officer with the RSPB, focusing on sustainable farming and land use. For those who might not be familiar with uh, Northern Ireland Environment Link or Neil, it is the networking and forum body for non-statutory organisations concerned with the natural and built environment of Northern Ireland. It has 60 full, 64 full members, which represent 190,000 individuals, 262 subsidiary groups, have an annual turnover of £70 million and manage over 314,000 acres of land. And on behalf of Neil and his members, I would just like to thank the committee for the invitation to present Neil's perspective on the cross-party Northern Ireland Climate Change Bill, which was submitted as a private member's bill on the 22nd of March, 2021. If I can, I'd just like to start with a little bit of background on why we need a climate change bill. Um, it's clear that the scientific consensus holds that our climate is changing with wide ranging risks and consequences for our society, economy and environment. The evidence is clear that in order to end our contribution to climate change, we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions or GHG emissions to net zero as soon as possible. Northern Ireland is, is the only part of the UK and Ireland that does not have its own specific legislation at this point. Although the UK Climate Change Act of 2008 and the 2019 amendment both apply to Northern Ireland, as I said, Northern Ireland continues to be the only part of the UK with no legally binding greenhouse gas reduction targets. And since the relevant areas of responsibility are devolved to the Northern Ireland Assembly, there is no mechanism by which the targets of the UK Act can be enforced. A Northern Ireland Climate Change Act would close this legislative gap and Neil members believe such an act is essential. It is important to remember that this Private Members Bill or PMB is a framework bill which means that it sets out the high-level targets and structures that will be required to tackle climate change in Northern Ireland, but does not provide the detail as to exactly how that will be achieved. The detail will be provided in the climate action plans required by the Private Members Bill. The climate action plans will be consulted upon and approved by the Executive before being voted on by the Assembly in a transparent and democratic process. I want to quickly turn to some of the key aspects of the Climate Change Bill, if I can. We know that tackling climate change will be a challenge which requires significant effort. And in order to meet that challenge, Neil would argue it is essential Northern Ireland sets a target for net zero for all greenhouse gases. The UK Climate Change Committee, or CCC, outlined what net zero means in its 2019 report on net zero when it said, and I quote, Within the UK, a 100% all GHG target sends a clear signal that all greenhouse gases matter and all need to be reduced. No sources of emissions can qualify for special treatment. All emissions from all sectors must be eliminated or offset with removal. In Northern Ireland, we should be confident that we can achieve net zero. As the UK Climate Change Committee said, 
in their sixth carbon budget report, quote, there is no purely technical reason why net zero is not possible in Northern Ireland, unquote. I would argue that if we have to do it and it is possible to do it, then we should do it. As time goes on, in the absence of appropriate action, the opportunity we have to stay within the target threshold of the Paris Agreement diminishes. In short, we have to do as much as possible as quickly as possible, and this should be what guides our decisions. The chair of the CCC, Lord Deben, in his foreword to the CCC's 2019 Zero Carbon Report, urged the governments of the UK to, quote, legislate for these new targets as swiftly as possible. We must now increase our ambition to tackle climate change. The science demands it. The evidence is before you. We must start at once. There is no time to lose." Unquote. In relation to um, a climate commissioner and a Northern Ireland Climate Office, both of these are provided for in the PMB. And the Climate Commissioner has two primary functions. First of all, to monitor the implementation of the Act, including the Climate Action Plans, and to lay annual reports on this in the Assembly. And the second is to review the working of the Act more generally and to make recommendations considered necessary to achieve the overriding climate objective. The Commissioner will therefore provide a vital source of independent scrutiny of and advice on Northern Ireland's action on climate change. And just to say quickly, that is, uh, there is a similar provision in the Climate Change Response Zero Carbon Amendment Act 2019 in New Zealand, which also establishes a Climate Commission. The Private Members Bill also aims to secure current climate and environmental protections by ensuring the environmental laws that applied as of the end of December 2020 will continue to apply in Northern Ireland and cannot be weakened. We believe that the Climate Change Bill provides an opportunity to secure this commitment and ensure that Northern Ireland acts to mitigate climate change. In conclusion, Chair, I just want to quickly uh, address the issue of fairness. And I want to address that in terms of what we will call per capita greenhouse gas emissions of countries. In other words, the emissions per head of population. In 2018, Northern Ireland's per capita emissions rate was 10.77 tonnes equivalent of carbon dioxide, and that would place Northern Ireland 13th in the world. And by that, I mean there are only 12 countries which would have higher per capita emissions. Now, that level is above the global average, obviously, but it's also um, above the per capita emissions of Brazil, the EU, China, Germany, and it's actually four times the per capita emissions of India. Now this higher than average level of greenhouse gas emissions per person in Northern Ireland places an onus on us to set our ambitions for reaching net zero as high as possible, as quickly as possible, and in the interest of fairness, earlier than most other countries. As well as being achievable, it is also clear that, amongst other things, creating a net zero carbon society offers us exciting opportunities to create more jobs, better buildings, better transportation and communication links, and better health outcomes through less polluted air and better access to more green space. This is a chance to reboot our economy and build back better. Decarbonising our society is a huge and unprecedented challenge. While we know most of what we need to know and how we need to do it, 
it is important that we approach this challenge with positivity. We must base our decisions not only on the best available evidence, but also on the foundations of ambition and the determination to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions. We will learn along the way, including from our mistakes, and we'll need to be flexible. But I believe we can do this, not least because we must. So thank you for that, Chair, and we are happy to take questions. Um, thank you uh, for that uh, presentation, Malagi. That was uh, very helpful. Um, I just want to just maybe pick up on a couple of wee pieces there. Um, you made reference to uh, fairness, and indeed, Malagi, the the bill is founded on the principles of um, the just, just transition. Um, do you believe that there's enough protections in this bill uh, to make the change that we need, which also protect, protecting incomes and labor and livelihoods, and, and in particular, I'm thinking of uh, agriculture, which industry which has been lobbying us quite heavily uh, in relation to the concerns about this. Um, I think I can also uh, refer to uh, Phil and bring him in in relation to some of the issues in relation to agriculture, but. Um, just to say generally in relation to uh, the just transition, I think that is a really important part of this bill and it's essential that um, people are brought along with the changes that we're going to have to make and supported in making those. Um, we know, for example, that the Scottish government um, has done some work on this and they've also established a, a Scottish Just Transition Commission. Now, we know also that the, the Climate Change Committee have, has also referred to um, the need for um, a just transition um, in their uh, one of their previous reports. Um, if I can uh, find the, the quote, they talked about um, the need for a just transition and they said the following, the transition, including for workers and energy bill payers, must be fair and perceived to be fair. Government should develop the necessary frameworks to ensure this. An early priority must be to review the plan for funding and the distribution of costs for businesses, households and the exchequer. And I think the basic point from that, Chair, is that we need to plan this thoroughly and properly and the support needs to be put in place to help all sectors move towards a net zero carbon economy. So, as I said, the, the bill is a framework bill and I think it's important that the, the principles of a just transition are in it but I think a lot of the detail remains to be um, worked out. Okay. Um, and I suppose, Malagi, one other thing for a number of members looking to speak here as well. Um, what do you think would be, you know, the consequences? And I know you mentioned like health and, and other, other issues here in terms of um, the importance of getting the Climate Change Act. What do you think would be the consequences of going with the UK CCC's recommendations as opposed to the recommendations in this uh, private member's bill? Well, I think for a start that there is uh, there is clarity in terms of um, a net zero target that we all know exactly what it is needs to be done. Um, I think in terms of fairness, as I mentioned, uh, in terms of per capita emissions, actually Northern Ireland is quite bad. And uh, I think that actually requires us to do more um, so I think, um, you know, we, we should be clear on what it is we need to aim for and what we need to aim for is, is uh, net zero. Um, 
And I think actually the, the UK Climate Change Committee um, have said something that, that's very relevant here. And in the sixth carbon budget report from last year, the committee said, and this is a quote, there is no purely technical reason why net zero is not possible in Northern Ireland. So the Climate Change Committee themselves seem to be saying that you know, we, we can do this. And if we can do this, we should. I mean, the committee have also outlined the, the many uh, sort of cross departmental gains that there are likely to result from achieving net zero. Um, some of which I've referred to earlier, like in, in terms of like health, um, in terms of improved, hopefully, transportation links, communication links, and so on. There will undoubtedly be economic opportunities from uh, developing a, a net zero economy. Um, and that's been made clear as well. So um, for all of those reasons and potentially more, um, I think that uh, we should be aiming for a net zero. If I could just come in there, Malachi, as well, just <clears throat> in relation to, to land use and co-benefits between between this bill, I suppose, and a target of 82%. And I suppose in terms of delivering increased, increased ambition for a particular land manage, management interventions. So say, for example, um, more ambitious targets, for example, for peatland restoration or wooden creation, for example, or greater land management schemes to allow farmers to deliver for more for nature on their land. And they would increase ambition, but they would also deliver a range of different co-benefits. So we have done a little bit of work looking at peatland restoration um, across two sites in Northern Ireland and trying to undertake um, natural capital assessments of those sites. So what would be the public benefits if they are restored? And what we found is that there would be improvements in water quality, which reduces costs for um, NI water. We would see um, if the right interventions are put in place, improve, improve public access, which delivers public health and wellbeing benefits. And then we'd also see um, benefits in terms of carbon reduction as well. So if increased ambition in those areas is ramped up, then you would see wider co-benefits um, being delivered um, with that increased ambition, um, which helps save money and provide a return on investment for, for those. And well, that, that would relate to also to air quality as well. You know, there'd be a, a link there as well. Is that right? Definitely, definitely. And that's that's just looking at land management in, in the countryside. Say, for example, we target with an expansion in city areas that can improve water or improve air quality and contribute towards people's health. So we have to look at all those. I think looking wider as well in terms of public transport and, and active travel too, there's co-benefits to be delivered there with increased ambition. So it's it's looking at those and maximising those as much as possible. Very, very, very briefly about the legislative basis for net zero, which I think Maliki just briefly touched on, but it's really important to highlight in that a net zero target um, brings us into alignment with the other devolved administrations of the UK, as well as the Republic of Ireland. So if we're talking about this concept of everyone playing their part, um, everybody's part would be equal with a net zero target, which is certain. Um, and you just wouldn't get that with 82%. That would see us significantly below that standard. Um, whereas net zero brings a, a, an element of certainty, which is crucial in this bill. Thank you, Laura. Okay, um, I'm going to move around the, the room here. Uh, next on my list is Rosemary. Rosemary Barton. Rosemary. Thank, yeah, thank, thank you very much. Thank you. I was interested in um, uh, Maliki, what you were saying, and thank you for your presentation in relation to net zero greenhouse gas emission. And Declan had touched on it earlier 
in regard to the agricultural community that we that we speak of. Um, you will have seen the headlines in the papers, in the press recently in relation to the climate change, this climate change bill and the agricultural community having to cut their livestock in half, etc., etc., which will obviously mean cutting their income in half. Um, uh, the agricultural community, when they invest in something, they're investing in something at thousands of pounds and they expect to get 20, 30, 40 years out of those investments. Uh, what advice would you have for them? Getting to net zero and also uh, what support would you like to see put, put in place for them if they have to have their stock and their income obviously halved? Well, thank you for your question, Rosemary. Um, I will hand over to Phil, but I should just say um, initially, as I'm sure you were aware, because this is a, a framework bill, there is absolutely no reference in this private member's bill whatsoever to any job losses in any sector. So it is not clear exactly what the outworkings of this private member's bill will be. And I think that's really important to emphasise because we have heard a number of different statements and a range of different figures thrown out as a criticism of this bill. And I could say there's really little foundation to most of what we have heard. So just to say again, there are no clauses or statements or projections within the private member's bill that relate to job losses in any sector. So to a certain extent, the, any of the figures that you may have quoted or others may have quoted are basically speculation. Um, as I mentioned earlier in relation to the just transition, I think it is important to say that, that applies to all sectors. So all sectors should be supported and guided through the changes that will be necessary to, for Northern Ireland to move to a net zero economy. Um, and um, I think what I should do is probably uh, hand over to Phil, who might be able to deal with some of those. But um, it's just to say that the details remain to be worked out, but there are no references or clauses in relation to job losses in this private member's bill. It merely, sorry, I shouldn't say merely, it provides a framework. The details are to be worked out. And I'll just I'll just come in there on, on top of that. Malikin, thank you, Rosemary, for, for the question. And whilst the bill doesn't provide a dedicated pathway, obviously the increased ambition within the CCC analysis does estimate up to 50% reduction in agricultural output. And it's quite a complex issue, but I'll go through some of the, the key points in it. So reduced output doesn't necessarily re mean reduced farm incomes or reduced numbers of farmers. And there's a growing body of, um, of research looking at farm businesses in marginal areas, so in uplands or um, in SDAs across Northern Ireland. And it's finding that actually managing your farm business in line with the land's natural carrying capacity. So trying to reduce input usage and um, trying to reduce feed and um, trying to reduce um, vet meds and things like that through reducing your stocking rates can actually deliver a better return to your farm business. So that, that that's achieved through reducing those costs. And 
around two thirds of Northern Ireland's land is is was allocated as LFA or SDA. So there could be opportunities to try and deliver that approach to business management in those areas to make those farm businesses more robust, more resilient, more sustainable. And I think looking at it in terms of that 50% reduction in output, it's not going to be, I wouldn't imagine it applied across the board to every single farm or every single farm business, because we need um, grazing animals to deliver outcomes for nature. So say, for example, in, in Fermanagh, where there's breeding populations of curlew, where there's species-rich grasslands, all of those types of habitats, we need grazing in there to deliver that. Um, and in some areas, we might need more grazing to do that. So it's about being really targeted to try and find out what you need from the land and matching, I suppose, stock and, and grazing towards that. In terms of output and the, the relationship with farm income as well, we've just had, um, I suppose, one of the most profitable years for the agri-sector agri in Northern Ireland. But even still, um, about two-thirds of that income is coming from BPS as opposed to the output from the farm itself. Some years, that's as much as 87% in terms of farm income coming from basic payment. So what we would want to see is a repurposing of that public money um, to be focused on nature and climate objectives. So farmers still get that return from land management, but it's helping to deliver those outcomes that we want that I mentioned earlier in terms of carbon sequestration and storage through restoring peatlands, um, through um, improving water quality by ma managing riparian areas, things like that, or in terms of bringing nature into your farmland more, more widely. And if that money is used right, we can do those two things at the same time. And we can also deliver other outputs from, from land management. So I can just very quickly come in there again, Chair. Um, as Phil has said, you know, there is the uh, growing sort of uh, thrust towards public money for public goods so that um, farmers and other uh, land managers will probably need to um, manage their land differently. But that does not sort of imply the, the job losses that have been mentioned um, in many occasions beforehand. And also, I've heard not only um, many of the co-sponsors of this bill, but many other AMLAs um, standing up in the Assembly, for example, and saying that while they support this bill, they do not wish to see the levels of job losses or damage that have been um, erroneously attributed to this bill. So, you know, I think potentially the agricultural community could um, take some comfort from that, that the stated intention um, is not to damage the uh, agricultural sector. In the same way, it is not the intention to damage any other sector in this bill, as far as I understand. Yeah, no, I agree with you. But that puts you in conflict with the Climate Change Committee, where Lord, Lord Debs talks about 82, 80 or 84 point. 6% or 82.4%, not sure which, uh, achievable of green, greenhouse gas. He, say, he is saying achieve as much as you can and then work towards zero. And he does not believe that the farming community will be fit to achieve the 100% by the time of this spill. And that puts you in direct conflict to his thoughts. I wouldn't quite accept that, Rosemary, insofar as I don't believe that um, we would be in conflict with the, the Climate Change Committee. There may potentially be a, a slight difference in interpretation. But again, as, as I said earlier, um, the Climate Change Committee themselves have stated that there is no um, reason why uh, Northern Ireland cannot reach net zero. Um, and the Climate Change Committee in their six carbon budget also described the 
five scenarios in that report of which the balanced pathway was only one as being illustrative of what a broadly sensible path based on moderate assumptions would look like and not prescriptive. So the Climate Change Committee themselves have basically said, you know, that this is a projection of the minimum, the absolute minimum of yes. yeah. that should be done. So, um, and they also, the, the committee themselves also said that, you know, uh, if the evidence is there, then um, devolved administrations should actually go beyond that. And we have seen examples of that where uh, the Climate Change Committee previously recommended um, a 95% reduction in greenhouse gases for Wales, and then Wales come up with a target to go to net zero. And there was no objection from the committee from that at all. In fact, they were supportive. So perhaps in, in terms of interpretation, um, we might see things slightly differently, but I think it's clear, actually, there's a lot of positivity in what the Climate Change Committee have said. They've said Northern Ireland can reach net zero. They basically said that all places should reach net zero. They said all emissions from all sectors must be eliminated. I think that's quite clear. So I, I wouldn't characterise it in the same way as you have done, Rosemary. I don't think we're really in very different positions. Okay, that's that's good to hear. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. Uh, Philip, Philip Wigan. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Chair. And uh, thank you to Laura, Maliki and Phil. I, sh I should always put in record, I suppose, before I ask questions, that I am a co-sponsor of, of the bill. Uh, so, I mean, you basically have outlined a very, very good scenario for the urgency of it. I mean, I, your, your presentation today is coming on back of the report yesterday that, that showed that, you know, the North's reduction was 18% and, uh, from 1990 and pitiful when matched against uh, other jurisdictions and regions. I mean, you're, you're reporting to us today on the day the CCE uh, produced a report in terms of the impact, and, you know, and, and in terms of their words, you know, in the report today, you know, they're pointing to the potential twenty centimeters sea level rise by the twenty fifties, uh, and you know they're saying rising temperatures here in the north uh, as one of a series of climate indicators needing urgent action and attention. Otherwise, there's going to be greater risks of flooding, summer droughts, and wildfires. I, I think sometimes people. Uh, here in the north, think that climate change is only something that impacts other nations and other countries, and 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 the report today clearly sets out the impact that it will have here if we don't take action. So it's time. I mean, a lot of the focus has been uh, in this debate so far has been reduced to agriculture, and agriculture is very important. Uh, you, you talked about the debates in the Assembly and the Minister sometimes talks about the farmers in North Antrim as some kind of dig towards myself and I, I can assure the farmers in North Antrim that uh, whilst I will be battling for climate change and net zero, I will certainly be battling uh, in their interests as well. But I mean, I'm looking at reports recently, advanced manufacturing nations, high and highly industrialised economies like Germany have committed or are committing to reducing uh, net zero by 2045, Scotland uh, which has a large oil and gas sector, uh, has a target of 2045. So in the context of what we have to do, I mean, surely it's going to be beneficial, uh, not just possible for the North to pursue uh, this target. So maybe you could outline a wee bit about the why an ambitious net zero target in the North is possible in ecological terms. Thank you very much for that, Philip. And uh, yes, you're, you're quite right. Um, there are many economic uh, opportunities from this. 
um, from uh, reaching net zero. Um, and I'd be happy to expose those with you. I should just say, um, the, uh, the era minister has himself said, and this is a direct quote from the uh, DERA Climate Change Bill consultation document that came out last year. He said, tackling climate change should be viewed not just as an environmental challenge, but also as an economic opportunity. And it's really important to get across that by moving to a net zero economy, which most other developed economies and other economies are having to do, it will offer opportunities. Now, the detail in terms of Northern Ireland is maybe not as well developed as the UK, but once again, we can look to the Climate Change Committee and the Sixth Carbon Budget Report. When they looked at this, they, they found that the modelling they commissioned suggested a boost to GDP growing to around 2% of GDP by 2030, with an accompanying boost to employment of around 1%. And basically, that would level off and then uh, reach a 3% boost by 2050. So there's quite clear economic opportunities that are there to be taken if we take them. And um, again, referring back to what the Climate Change Committee have said in relation to tackling climate change, one of the, the issues that they have prioritised is, for example, um, increasing insulation in homes. Now, doing that will not just reduce climate emissions, but it could create jobs and hopefully help local um, companies who would have to install a much greater amount of insulation. It could potentially save homeowners money, hopefully take people out of fuel poverty. And as you know, for years, fuel poverty levels in Northern Ireland have been higher than any other region in the UK and uh, the Republic of Ireland. So we need to tackle that anyway. If we have more people living in warmer homes, they will not only be hopefully taken out of fuel poverty and will be more comfortable in their homes and less stressed, they will then also will have more money in their pockets. So there's a number of wins just from one action, which is a contributor to uh, getting towards uh, a net zero carbon. So, I mean, we've got uh, the, the shipyard in Belfast, which has moved from shipbuilding to uh, installation of marine renewables. That's the growing area for them. Um, and I think it's also true to say that because so many companies, large and small, are now advertising themselves and associating themselves with um, being net zero or net, net uh, zero carbon and so on, that this is something that we will have to respond to in terms of the direction of travel. We also have opportunities to market ourselves as a zero carbon community. Um, and you know, the uh, National Grid has done some research on uh, what will be necessary in order to um, reach net zero across the UK and um, by 2050. And if I remember correctly, um, I think of the 1.6 million jobs they talked about, they said uh, potentially 40,000 jobs could be created here in Northern Ireland. Now, as far as I can recall, in 2017, 2018, we had roughly 11,000, 11,500 jobs in the low carbon sector here in Northern Ireland. So 40,000 jobs will be significant anyway, but it's it's more than three times what the, the sector was um, a couple of years back. So Undoubtedly, there are huge opportunities um, that we need to grasp. And just to quickly say, Philip, in relation to the point you asked in terms of um, uh, the environment and sort of the, the possible uh, options for what we might call nature-based solutions, it refers back to the point that, that Philip made in terms of public money for public goods. You know, we do need 
uh, our land we manage differently. Unfortunately, Northern Ireland is distinctive in terms of the UK. Um, its land use is actually a net emitter rather than a net sink. So in terms of climate change, we, we urgently need to change that. But in changing that, we can create jobs in a different form of land management. So there are many wins to be to be gained from this. So you're absolutely right in the point you made, Philip. Okay, thank you. And just, I mean, uh, just on something Laura had said earlier on, and then Maggie, you, you talked about the bill uh, in terms of the target, and it's a framework bill. Can maybe I ask Laura just talk about the impact? Uh, you know, a legislative target of net zero by twenty forty five and regulations uh, around that, and why there why that would be important in regard to the context of this bill. Uh, and sparking broader climate action. And then just in case the chair doesn't allow me back in again, uh, I mean, I'm obviously a very keen uh, pursuer of active travel and cycling. Uh, Maybe if you could, because there's sometimes a lot of criticism about the North in terms of lack of infrastructure and lack of uh, ambition with that. I mean, is that something that you would see this climate bill uh, in terms of the plans actually helping push forward, you know, reducing emissions through greater active travel? Hi, yes, Philip, just on your, your point, um, I mean, it's a central feature of many comparative pieces of climate legislation across the board that there is a strong, overarching, ambitious target that is clear and concise. And it kind of goes back to my earlier point in that, um, you know, th- this concept of net zero is one which people can define easily. Um, and it's one that is re- replicated in Scottish legislation, in Welsh legislation, in overarching UK climate legislation, and also in the Republic of Ireland as well. So we'd be falling into step with that. Um, and it's it's the clarity that speaks in that final overarching objective. That's the ultimate goal. And that sets the pace of ambition and delivery. So the, the, the interim targets that would lead up to that are crucial as well. But this overarching goal sets the speed. It sets the accelerator. Um, And it has to match. If we're all in this together, if there's uh, a just transition and we all have to play our part, each sector has to play their role, then it's crucial that it comes under the banner of a net zero overarching target. If I could just very briefly add to that, um, Philip, um, Laura's right in what she says, but um, apart from all the um, physical uh, and mental well-being um, benefits from from, uh, active travel, uh, research from the UK of Department of Transport found that cycling schemes can have benefit to cost ratios in the range of five to one to 19 to one, with some returns as high as 35 and a half to one. So in terms of the economics, we get much, much more back from investing in active travel. And the same research for the, for the Department of Transport found that a typical, what they call cycling city, could be worth um, 377 million to the NHS in healthcare cost savings. And that's in 2011 prices. So it's going back a few years. But the basic point is, it's good for the environment, it's good for people, it's good for the NHS, and it makes economic sense. So definitely, we should be doing much, much more in terms of active travel here. And and just additionally as well, I mean, the bill weaves in just transition principles, and one of those is to uh, support net zero carbon investment and infrastructure. And so active travel would fall completely within that um, and, you know, would excel under a net zero climate target. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, just before I move off, not Laura, maybe I'm, 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 I'm sort of, uh, this is more maybe a trade issue, but maybe from a legal perspective, um, would you have any indication 
or assessment of what might be the applications here uh, on the island of Ireland that given the fact that virtually all of our food is processed across the island of Ireland, uh, it's all deemed mixed origin, but it's all, it's all mixed origin across the both islands. Would you envisage any legal or trade issues that could potentially emerge if one part of the island, uh, the north um, uh, or the south, uh, is reaches net zero, uh, and, the, and one uh, another part of the island isn't isn't net zero? Is there any legal or trade um, issues that you could foresee in relation to that in terms of our um, international markets and things like that? Um, well, yes, I mean. <sighs> I couldn't really speak to the trade specifically without looking at the, the details, but I mean, it's a very simple fact that if there's a disparity between, uh, you know, uh, overarching targets, there's going to be an issue there. Um, and, um, you know, it's crucial that net zero applies across the board because we share um, an ecological landscape and an island approach with uh, the Republic who have a different target in place. So in order to avoid that, it would be crucial to have a similar target in place as well with the same kind of objective. Um, but yeah, you could see could see issues coming down the line for that. Yeah, and the UK CCC makes very little reference to the, the island-wide dimension of the legislation. So do you think it'd be important that because we are, are a small island, have the same biodiversity, the same environment, the same farming types actually across the island, um, do you think it'd be important then that we would be aligned as far as possible on this? I do. An alignment with the Republic um, in the South as well it would put us into, especially in terms of net zero, would put us put us into alignment with the UK as well. Um, you know, so there's there's equality across the board there. Um, but that issue in, in and of itself also points to um, the importance of the Climate Commissioner within the legislation. Um, as an independent organisation, which is bespoke to Northern Ireland, so is able to pull in advices from various statutory advisory climate bodies like the CCC, like the Republic's Climate Advisory Council, and pull them together and advise NI given its unique position. Um, and it's absolutely crucial that we have that because as we've seen, the CCC can only say so much in relation to what goes on in the Republic. And um, for that reason, we need something that is able to act like a filter and pull together a range of advices and um, and give a filtered version that is, uh, you know, couched with Northern Ireland's position in mind. Thank you, Laura. Uh, William? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And can I thank you for your presentation? Can I ask, first of all, I mean, the first question I ask is, do you accept the findings of the Climate Change Committee in the UK? Thank you for your question. Which findings are you referring to? Well, I mean, I'm going to read a wee bit from this, you know, that contradicts what you're saying. Deep emission reductions in Northern Ireland are still crucial to the UK if they are to reach net zero overall. On the basis of our analysis, we find that in every scenario for achieving net zero that we have constructed, Northern Ireland will not get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. In every scenario that they have constructed, they have said that clearly. They're saying that Northern Ireland can reach 82% by 2050, which means that the overall UK reaches net zero. We are part of the UK, so that in effect means the UK doesn't reach net zero by 2050. You may not accept that. 
it's difficult for me to answer the question that you've asked me, William, because um, I'm, I'm reading the committee report. I'm re reading from there. I, I'm reading it very clear. It's very clear. It's right, black and white. And I'm sure you've read it yourself. Well, what I was going to say, I don't know whether you were referring to things that you believe that I have said personally or things that I have um, said to you in relation to the Climate Change Committee, because what I have done is I have quoted the words of the UK Climate Change Committee back to you. And I, I can say to you again, on page 230 of the Sixth Carbon Budget Report, which the UK Climate Change Committee published in 2020, the UK Climate Change Committee said the following, quote, there is no purely technical reason why net zero is not possible in Northern Ireland, unquote. So I am, I am telling you what the Climate Change Committee themselves have said, and they are basically saying net zero is possible. So I, I don't know, I, I can't critique that particular phrase and, and say, well, actually, that's not correct. That's what the Climate Change Committee themselves have said. I, I clarify another line from you. For you. Getting mm -hmm. to net zero in Northern Ireland would mean one or both of the following. A substantial reduction in the output from Northern Ireland life service farming. To get to net zero, that is clear. A substantial reduction in the output from Northern Ireland's livestock farming. Do you accept that's the case? <laughs> Obviously, no, that's that, that can't be clear. It's black and white here. I can come in there. All the time. Yeah, substantial reduction in output from Northern Ireland livestock sector. They've made it very, very clear. Yeah, I was just going to come in there. Thank you for the, the question, William. So we've looked at, there's obviously five different pathways within the CCC's report. So there's the balanced pathway towards net zero um, to reach UK net zero by 2050. There's also areas for increased ambition that we've, I suppose, looked at it specifically from a land use point of view. And there are opportunities for increased ambition in terms of peatland restoration, potentially quicker and faster. There's potential opportunities in Northern Ireland for increased woodland cover as well. And that brings in, I suppose, a choice in terms of how to use the land and the potential implications as well in terms of agricultural output and food production too. And it's complex and we, we don't dispute what the CCC have modelled in their, in their pathways whatsoever. But if we look potentially at alternative pathways as well, which maybe look at different farming systems. So um, I would quote the work of Food Farming and Countryside Commission, which have modelled agroecological approaches to agriculture and land management. And what they found is that you would have reductions in some um, some livestock in terms mainly looking at poultry and and uh, a pork as well, because they contribute quite a lot to land use change in the UK and also in terms of emissions associated with some other imports too. They've also looked at reduction in nitrogen fertilizer use through moving to a more kind of extensive system and also opportunities for growing crops um, for, for human consumption as well. And they find quite quite significant reductions. That's one one pathway that they've looked at across the UK. There's loads of other organisations looking at it as well. And I suppose we have choices to make in terms of what food and farming systems we want. Do we want them to be restoring nature? Do we want them to be improving water quality and air quality and all those different things? And I think we have to look at it holistically. It's not all about um, all about climate. But ultimately, we are going to have to change the way we have we do things. And we're going to have to change in terms of what we produce and what we eat as well. 
If, if I can come in on that very quickly again, Chair, um, I'm going to quote the Climate Change Committee again, if that's okay. Um, and in their six carbon budget, and it's page 171, um, they said that the impacts of less intensive farming or agroecology options, which are the sort of options that Phil has just referred to, they are not included in the CCC scenarios, quote, due to the lack of robust evidence on the abatement, on the abatement potential, unquote. Now, what that means is that the estimates for greenhouse gas reductions from agriculture are incomplete and they are underestimates. Now, there's a couple of things. Obviously, there's more research needed on that. But if the projections in terms of the amount by which we can reduce our greenhouse gases is incomplete, then that changes the picture. So I would say, therefore, that it is not clear exactly what will need to happen as we progress. And Philip has mentioned some of the many different ways that um, agriculture can overall reduce its, its impact. Um, so a lot of this is to be uh, decided. As I said, the, the bill is a framework bill. And we know, for example, we've got um, a number of agricultural groups um, that are in support of this bill. And um, as you will probably know, the National Farmers Union has actually committed to net zero by 2040. So I, I, I don't think the National Farmers Union would do that if there were, uh, if, you know, Alison was going to decimate the farmers in England and Wales the way this time. So, um, Can I say in two different things? You're, you're, you're talking about the Farmers Union in England, which is a, uh, would have a lower level of stock and density than Northern Ireland, okay? Northern Ireland, the recommendation from the Climate Change Committee is clear. We can, with a push and a big ask to, to reduce to 82% by 2050. In doing that, the UK as a whole reaches net zero. What's the issue there? The UK as a whole reaches net zero by doing what the Climate Change Committee recommends. It seems very sensible to me. Well, the, the Climate Change Committee has also made it clear that, as I said to you, the, the scenarios in its six carbon budget were just that. They were scenarios and they were sort of projections. And of the five projections that they had in that budget, only one of them, which is the balanced pathway, pathway involved a reduction of at least 82% greenhouse yeah. gas emissions by 2050. So if you say you have to do at least 82%, if you did 99.9 or 100%, that's still within the range. That's at least. It. So there is nothing, I would say, that precludes Northern Ireland from reaching net zero. I'll finish with this and I'll read this once more. In every scenario for achieving that UK net zero that we have constructed, Northern Ireland will not get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. That cannot be clear in my eyes. That is the Climate Change Committee. Well, right. Every scenario that they ever, in every scenario for achieving that idea that we have constructed, they will not do it. Well, again, I would say that uh, the scenarios in the six carbon budget are projections. And, and with the chair's indulgence, if I may, I will uh, read back to you what the Climate Change Committee said in 2019. Quote, within the UK, a 100% all GHG target needs to send a clear signal that all greenhouse gases matter and all need to be reduced. No sources of emission can qualify for special treatment. All emissions from all sectors must be eliminated or offset with removals. So I would put it to you 
that the Climate Change Committee is actually very clear that the 100% target that the UK has means all emissions from all sectors must be eliminated. Well, they're, they're, in, they're making it clear that if, if, we, if Northern Ireland reaches 82% by 2050, the UK reaches net zero. That has been as clear. Can I come yeah, in? Around from our members here, folks. Could you just sort of, sort of, um, go ahead. Yeah, you want no. oh, yeah. I was just going to come in and say, I suppose looking back and setting the context, the UK and a range of other countries, um, other parts of the world have only just committed to net zero within the last three years or so. Initially, the Climate Change Act was looking at an 80% reduction target across the UK from 2008 to now. And even then, um, there was challenge to that, saying that that wasn't achievable, that wasn't possible, that would cost too much. And the evidence has become clearer and clearer and clearer. We need more ambitious action. And we're already at 1.2 degrees warming now. We need to try and keep it below 1.5. So we need to be as ambitious as we possibly can. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was a need for increased ambition um, in the future. And do we want to be on a sustainable pathway where we're capable of meeting that? Or do we want to have to make more painful, more difficult changes to, to try and address that? Okay. Okay, I'm going to move around the room here. Claire? Claire Bailey? Thanks, Chair. Um, uh, thanks for your comments and views so far. Um, and I know that you've already expressed quite a bit there on the net zero versus 82% carbon targets. Uh, but please feel free uh, to add anything further on that bit if you think it's important. But I want to look at in terms of climate change legislation generally and what you believe to be essential when ex expressing any targets um, and then also how important a deadline is within that. Laura, are you okay to take that one? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, thanks for your question, Claire. I think um, good strong, ambitious climate legislation that falls into step with that, which has already um, been sort of underway for a number of years um, for certain countries um, and nations, has to have an ambitious overarching target. It then has to have interim arrangements to reach that target because we can't have a situation where we wait until the very end to assess whether we're reaching a target. And then because it is an area that is so crucially driven by science um, and that science um, fluctuate that science changes over time as things change the science changes and that's been seen through the advice of the ccc and also um you know devolved administration's responsibilities under that i mean wales for instance was given a, a percentage target and has now since been adapted and welcomed by the climate change committee to go for net zero so um it is a pathway and because of the the sort of intrinsic importance of science it's important to have crucial oversight of that um, the Climate Change Committee, as I say, um, I wouldn't want to undermine them. They, they are important. They have their place in terms of the UK's obligations um, and their advice is, is, is great. But NI has a very unique position and that's why within this bill we have put in the Climate Commissioner. Um, and as I outlined before, it's crucial that that organisation exists. We have um, legislative precedent for creating organizations like this that focus solely on ANI's position. Um, the, the actual provision that relates to the climate commissioner itself, I believe is taken sort of almost verbatim or definitely along the lines of the public services ombudsman, um, which exercise the same sort of powers and functions. So that independent oversight particular to ANI is crucial 
um, in good climate legislation, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and then there are other central themes as well, which need to be sort of underscored. Um, and that is the concept of transparency and accountability. Um, and all underpinned by just transition principles. If we've got those key ingredients, then that is strong climate legislation. The reason being is that if it is a, an issue, climate change is an issue that affects all of us. Um, and we all need to be sort of in it together. Um, and, you know, we need to have a say. Everything needs to be done equally. And that sort of also gives rise to the importance of net zero being applied across the board as well. Thanks for that. Um, and I know that when we had Lord Deben with us last week, we were trying to touch on the impact of, you know, sticking with this UK net zero or, you know, Northern Ireland's part in that net zero. But we know that the whole sort of um, move from global trade, investment and finance sectors are all moving towards investment in those who are, you know, going for net zero, which is sort of where I'm going about, you know, how important is it to have that expression of a target and to be seen to be moving towards that and being accountable and transparent and open in terms of getting future investment into our private sector. And that includes the agri sector as well, of course. Um, and Northern Ireland's produce will be traceable within all that as well. You know, I just also want to know, have you any thoughts on the targets within this bill um, uh, for soil quality, for water quality, for biodiversity, um, and, and how important those would be within the good legislation as well? Um, I think before I, I, I sort of hand that to um, Phil, I think it's very important that those considerations are in the bill. Um, we uh, There's a number of issues we have in terms of our biodiversity and um, I think it's generally well known that it, it is not doing well. Um, the, uh, there was a 2019 review in terms of the state of nature that pointed out just how badly uh, uh, things are in terms of our biodiversity. So, you know, obviously these, these things are related. And, you know, if you have um, uh, warming and you have warming in rivers, there is a, there's a lethal limit for young fish in rivers. So, you know, it's undoubted that... Uh, Climate change can have effect on biodiversity, and that also, you know, has implications for land managers. You know, I think one of the big threats to the agriculture sector actually is climate change. So this relates back to why this uh, is, is needs to be tackled in a sort of like very collaborative and cohesive basis. So, um, I think it's really beneficial that those um, those measures are in this bill. I think that's going to be uh, very positive. I think it's really important. You need to look at these issues in the round, but. I think I should also hand over to Phil at this stage to give a little more detail on that. Yeah, I would I would just come in to say that um, setting targets for the recovery of nature will be hugely vital. Um, yeah, as we as we chart our path forward, so legislative targets for, to meet those objectives will be will be key. Um, we've seen moves within um, other pieces of legislation to do something similar, so we would support um, targets in law for nature. Philip, I think you. Just one more, please. Um, you touched on the issue of forestation and tree planting, and we know that there's an urgent need to plant trees in Northern Ireland, and the Minister has announced his plan for that. But in response to a written question I submitted, um, it showed that less than 1% of saplings imported by Deira Forest Service are broadleaf trees. And in that financial year, which was um, 2020 to 21 so far, 
almost 200 million, or sorry, almost 2 million were Sitka spruce saplings were imported. So do you have any comment on that? Um, how do you feel that, that we're doing in terms of the reforestation, if that's what we're planting and what kind of changes will be needed? Yeah, sorry. sorry question and um yeah we're always of, of the view of the right tree in the right place for both carbon and for for nature and we have to be really strategic in terms of what where we're planting and where and um, to get those outcomes so we have done a little bit of work looking across the uk in terms of where would be good areas to um to deliver woodland expansion we also looked at, I suppose, the balance between which trees deliver the best benefits for, for climate. And we're finding that over a 100-year period that it's actually native broadleaves that would deliver most in terms of a climate benefit, whilst also delivering that benefit for nature in terms of native woodlands and also delivering benefits to, to public health and well-being from, from access to that. Our view on it in the future would be that based on public money for public goods, that funding for woodland um, creation should be based on those trees that provide those benefits, so it should be focused on native woodland, and that that um, public investment in terms of taxpayers' money shouldn't be going to commercial forestry. There will be a role for commercial forestry to play with in the future, um, but we want to see that sustainable as well. So I've seen, obviously, within the, the CCC pathways that they're um, putting forward two-thirds native broadleaves for NI and a third um, commercial, I suppose, Sitka spruce and lodgepole pine and the others to kind of deliver those benefits. Just to very briefly make a quick point, Phil is exactly right in what he said, but um, I know that you've already heard from the Woodland Trust and I believe that they would endorse what I'm about to say, and that is as well as native stock, it's like native native stock in terms of locally sourced. So rather than recording, say, oak trees, which are a native tree from the Czech Republic or from Holland, we should try as far as possible to ensure that the stock that we plant here has actually been sourced here. That's really important as well. Okay, um, folks, we need to just get, keep moving around here because our next next witnesses uh, are, are, are are in the waiting room. So, okay, we're going to move around here to John Blair. Thank you, Chair. Can I thank Malachi, Laura and Phil uh, for being with us again and for the information they've, they've given to us. Um, some of what I could have asked originally was going to uh, or has already been covered. But what I want to do is make it clear that, you know, I am probably more climate realist than, than climate activist in, in most regards. But I, I also come at this issue uh, in a glass half full um, frame of mind. And I do that because I am fully aware of the uh, devastating tip, tipping points that face um, others who will be disproportionately affected. Uh, people with whom we share this big round planet who will be impacted more than us by, by the impact of climate change. And in that regard, I'm always very keen to establish what every sector can do and not to be parochial, but to look at this uh, 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 through a more global view. Um, and in that regard, can I ask, and this relates directly to, this, to the sectoral plans that are in the proposed bill, is there more we can do at this point to try and highlight um, what the responsibilities and actions are required on a cross-sectoral basis so that transport, business, energy and all of those issues can be looked at in the same frame as agriculture? Because if we add some of the others together, there is a bigger contributor than agriculture. But we tend to separate agriculture every time of this conversation. Given the nature of this committee, that's not a surprise. But given the, the, the cross-sectoral impact across society, 
I think we'll have to look at the bigger picture as often as we can. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Thank you for that point, John. Um, you're absolutely correct. Yes, um, that is a fair assessment. And I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned it. Not only do we need to um, look at this in the round, um, as I mentioned, you know, our, our, our moves towards net zero will cut across all sectors of the economy. Um, and it is also important to, to take that sort of bigger picture. And that's why I wanted to refer to the, um, the per capita emissions, because I think that puts what we are doing here in context, you know, um, we are a small place, but we actually have quite a significant impact in terms of per person emissions. So it's important to consider those. Um, I think John actually probably already mentioned some of the things that would need to be done. And if I can, I'll just very quickly refer to, again, the Climate Change Committee in their 2020 report on re reducing UK emissions. They mentioned five clear investment priorities for building a resilient uh, economy for the UK. And they were, firstly, low carbon retrofits and buildings that are fit for the future. Secondly, tree planting, peatland restoration and green infrastructure. Thirdly, energy networks must be strengthened. Fourth, infrastructure to make it easy for people to walk, cycle and work remotely. And five, moving towards a circular economy. So um, I think those uh, are, are fairly standard as and they would be the sort of priorities and um, that most people would recognize, you know, like we do need to decarbonize our, our energy systems as well. We need to decarbonize transport. We need those nature based solutions in terms of land use. We need to invest in those sort of low carbon options. And um, just to say as well, the CCC also said um, that it is really important that we integrate net zero into all policy making and ensure, ensure procurement strategies are consistent with the UK's climate objectives. And that's just a, a very important additional point because we have to take a strategic view to this. We have to put the, the resources in across the board and we have to invest in the things that will get us to um, zero carbon, knowing that they will pay back and will ultimately save money in the long run. So I think we have a fairly good idea of what it is we need to do to take us most of the way there. But as I said earlier, it is, I think, undoubtedly the case that we will learn along the way and we should learn from others. And that's both in terms of um, cities, individuals, states. You know, we, we should be prepared to learn from others because we have to do this on a collaborative basis. Okay. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Monica, for that. Thank you, Chair. I give an apology in advance that I'll have to leave about 3.30 for another meeting, so I'll apologise to, to those who present them if I go while they're, they're still here and hopefully yeah. see all of you soon. Thank you, John, for your apology in advance. And last but not least, Morris. Chairman, thank you very much. And, and John Blair must be reading my notes. I'm checking my shoulder here to see if he's standing beside me because we're both on the same page and we're on the same theme. And that is that we concentrate on agriculture uh, in this committee, rightly so, because it's a, a major employer and a major economic generator. But transport, in my opinion, is also a significant generator of greenhouse gases in Northern Ireland. And there's a tendency to suggest electric cars. But what would the savings be in moving to electric powered vehicles if we continue to use fossil fuels to generate electricity? Uh, I know we've had notable success in generating electricity from renewable sources. But have emissions from the power sector had some success? That's something we need. To, I think we need to look at. And also in the generation uh, of electricity, we have increasing wind farms in Northern Ireland. 
but has yet few initiatives to use tide and wave movements as a potential electricity generator. How do you see this progressing in the future, considering there are always objections to increasing wind farms across the province? And also on, on a transport theme, our rail network needs vast improvement and vast investment to remove so many HDVs from our roads. And lastly, and I'll try and get these all in at once because I know the chair's pushed for time. Uh, how are we doing in terms of recycling uh, for Northern Ireland compared to Wales and Scotland and England? Uh, is recycling cost effective to reduce waste to landfill sites and therefore emissions? Or is it an argument for incineration to get rid of waste? The last one, Chair. Uh, in the next decade, we require societal changes as well. Do we need so many street lights switched on? Do we need so many roadway lights, so many motorway lights, so many roundabout lights? And just to think of other ways of reducing emissions outside of concentrating in agriculture all the time. Sorry for having it all on one go there. <laughs> um, thank you for your many questions, Morris. Um, I have to ask the chair for indulgence if I try to answer all of those, and I'll try to remember them. Um, first of all, I mean, you make very good points. It, it is true, of course, that um, to a certain extent, electric vehicles are, are as green as the power that goes into them. So it is really important that those electric ve vehicles should be powered by renewably generated electricity. Um, but it is also worth noting that um, electric vehicles emit only water. So rather than all the uh, particulates and other gases that would come out of uh, an exhaust from uh, a vehicle used in an internal combustion engine, um, there are very important considerations in terms of air quality for the, when using electric vehicles. And that is a really important consideration. So um, in terms of just even cleaning up the air in uh, urban and other environments, um, and we should actually be using more renewable electricity um, uh, in terms of uh, powering those electric vehicles. And that sort of could be a very a virtuous circle, if you like. Um, so we should be using more of that. Um, I'm trying to remember your other questions, uh, Morris. Sorry, can you uh, mention them again? Yeah, about the, the incineration of waste uh, to reduce emissions. Do you see in between as well, though, Morris? Hmm? There were a couple of other questions you had in between that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would actually where I wrote these down. Uh, transport, you've touched on that. Uh, the rail network, investment in the rail network to take some of these HTV lorries off the road. Well, again, um, as we mentioned in our, our written evidence to the committee, there, um, one of the key things that Neil believes needs to be done is the decarbonisation of energy. And one of the ways to decarbonize energy is basically to electric, sorry, decarbonize transport. And one of the ways to do that is to um, use electricity as a power source for transport. So you can have electric buses, electric lorries and so on. So uh, again, um, that would uh, solve a lot of problems in terms of the emissions from those vehicles and potentially could um, sort of like even out the demand and usage of renewable electricity. So um, yeah, and, and again, you can have electric rails. So that, that is an option, and um, it's difficult for me to, to comment on the potential for, for transport by rail in Northern Ireland because we have a quite limited rail network, um, and I can't really give a, a Neil opinion on that because it's not something we have explored in detail, but if I, I can say on a personal level, I think it would be a good idea if we could have um, more rail travel, and particularly if it was electrified rather than using, say, diesel. That would be a good thing. Through your, through your patience, Chair, I touched on electricity and the generation of electricity through wind farms. 
Uh, and generally, when there's a wind farm appears anywhere, uh, it, it garners a lot, an awful lot of objections amongst the public. But have you explored the need for uh, generation of electricity using tide and wave, the movement of the tide and the waves around your own coast? Oh, yes. And um, to start off, actually, Mars, I would say that I think there's a misconception that wind farms are not popular. Um, the, the surveys that I have read and the research I have done on this actually shows that there is very, very high levels of support for renewable energy, like 80% and above consistently. So I think it's actually a misconception that there isn't support for these wind farms. That's not to deny that there are um, patches of um, objections, but um, you know it is important as well that renewable energy technologies are cited appropriately. That applies to, to wind turbines, to hydroelectric power, so that you know that any um, uh, hydroelectric developments do not sort of like prevent uh, passage of migratory fish and so on. So we need to do these things in a sensitive way that sort of respects and hopefully does not in any way damage our natural environment. So it, it, it's not quite that clear, but um, we do need more um, of those alternatives. And in terms of uh, marine power, tidal power, wave power, and so on, I think that's an area where, unfortunately, um, we haven't taken advantage of the opportunities that are there. I am aware that some um, marine-based renewable technologies have, in effect, been exported from Northern Ireland to other places. For example, Scotland, there's a limpet technology that I think um, Queen's University Belfast worked an awful lot on. Um, and yet that technology has been applied in other places rather than here. So it comes back to the question, I think, that um, Philip McGuigan asked earlier about the potential opportunities that we have. There are a lot of opportunities. We really could make a lot of positives from this. And um, I would just like to see more of that. Okay. Okay. My point, Chair, and it's, it's, it's a small answer, I'm sure, and that is why do we not reduce the use of lights on our streets or, or, or motorways or roundabouts, et cetera, et cetera, to, to decrease, decrease the reliance on electricity and the generation of electricity? Yes, sorry, Morris. Uh, again, very good point. And I think that might be the Department of Infrastructure. Yep. That. So um, I think the question is probably directed, better directed towards them. But yes, I, I think it's fair to say it, we shouldn't have lights on in the middle of the day um, along the road, as I have seen myself. I think that's that's a waste of energy, and we need to be reducing our energy consumption as much as possible. So I would agree with you that that, that is something that should be addressed. Okay, thank you for your patience. Thank you, thank you very much. And I want to just thank us, uh, Laura, Phil, and uh, Maliki for uh, coming here this morning, and for your attendance and for your 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 very good answers and your presentation. So okay, thank you very much, and we'll see you again. Okay. Thank you very much again for the No problem at all. Take care. Okay, can I think, can members agree that we can uh, put this, uh, the, the NIEL briefing paper on our committee webpage? Okay. Okay, members, uh, what I'm proposing with uh, your your uh, support, hopefully, is that we we move directly to the oral evidence session on the uh, the climate NIE. Uh, it's item seven your agenda, and I can come back to item six, which is a written briefing on the, the monthly update. So, um, item seven then is oral evidence session on the uh, from climate NI. The briefing paper uh, from climate NI is at page seventy seven. I want to welcome by Starleaf Dr. Jade Berman, acting climate NI manager, Stephen Jones, ex acting NI resilience coordinator, and Kieran Fox, chair of NI partnership. 
So I uh, want to thank you very much. Sorry, we uh, we're on we're on a wee bit over time. We're a lot of enthusiasm on this topic. So I'd like to invite you to uh, brief the committee, and members will ask some questions thereafter. And hopefully, that their interference will uh, will will disappear once the com the briefing commences. Uh, chair, thank you very much for the, the welcome this afternoon. Uh, my name is Kieran Fox and I'm the Chair of Climate NI and uh, my, my day job is as Director of the Royal Society of the Ulster Architects. Um, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to provide evidence today. Climate NI is a cross-sectoral network focusing on increasing the understanding of climate change impacts and risks within Northern Ireland and promoting actions necessary to address these. Uh, I'm joined today, as you mentioned, uh, by two staff from the organisation, Dr. Jade Berman, who is the Acting Climate NI Manager, and Stephen Jones, who is the Acting uh, Climate NI Resilience Coordinator. Climate NI is led by a steering group, which represents organisations from across business, local councils, academia, the voluntary sector and government. It works with stakeholders to help develop policy, practice and implementation of climate adaptation, and more recently, also mitigation across all sectors. But the focus over the last number of years has been on adaptation. Uh, an important characteristic of a diverse network made up of government and civil society actors is to have a variety of viewpoints and to seek where possible to find common ground on issues of importance. However, I should state for the record that neither our written brief today or our oral evidence is on behalf of our funding department or any other government department on the steering group. Climate NI does retain a degree of independence in that respect. So we are here today to share our, our expertise. Um, as there will be as in actions to reduce the severity of climate change, uh, including emission targets, uh, we will be focusing our evidence mainly on adaptation. Uh, that's preparing for the impacts of climate change, both the risks and the opportunities. Um, so really that, uh, that sense of climate change is coming, we need to be ready. Um, and really for the purposes of today, focusing on how that can be strengthened within the bill. Uh, of course, we're happy to um, give you brief answers on all of the areas requested um, by, the, uh, by the committee's work. Uh, as an overall message to the committee, the best time for us to have taken climate action was, of course, in the past, but the next best time is now. Uh, the DERA greenhouse gas emission stats were released yesterday, and there's only been a 1% decrease between 2018-19 and agriculture, land use, and residential all increased when they should be decreasing. Uh, Northern Ireland needs to act now on front load cutting carbon and preparing for the future climate change, which is already locked in, as delays will cost money, lead to lost opportunities, and cause damage, including loss of lives, property, and nature, both locally and further afield. And just to give you a sense of scale, in April 2021, insurance firm uh, Swiss Re stated that the economies of G7 nations contracted by about 4.2% on average in the coronavirus pandemic, 
and the economic losses from the climate crisis by 2050 would be roughly on the scale of suffering a similar crisis twice every year. The UK's economy would lose 6.5% a year by 2050 on current policies and projections. So this is why strengthening adaptation and cutting carbon as soon as possible must both be priorities for this bill. I'll pass now to Jade. Thank you, Karen. So we've, we've provided the committee with a written brief, so we will now provide a summary of some of those key points raised. So as Kieran has iterated, even if we stop all emissions immediately, we have already baked in, as they said this morning, for climate risk change. Even if we stop now, we've locked in a certain amount of climate change. Therefore, it is essential that the bill includes explicit reference and action in relation to adaptation. So climate change adaptation is the process of adjusting to current or expected climate change and its effects, as well as mitigation, which are those actions which limit global warming and its related effects. So adaptation should be given equal importance in the opening text and the rest of the climate change bill, in addition to the use of IPCC definitions of key phrases such as resilience. The Climate Change Committee stated in its sixth carbon budget report that even if the Paris goals are delivered in full and global temperature rise is limited to 1.5 degrees, there will still be further impacts from climate change beyond those already occurring today. If the Paris goals are missed, the global and UK impacts will be even more severe. The UK needs to increase its ambition, and that means us as well, on climate change adaptation, as it is not even prepared for a 1.5 to 2 degree world. For Northern Ireland, climate change means we will experience warmer, wetter winters with more intense rainfall and hotter, drier summers. However, cold snaps, drier winters and wet summers will still occur. Therefore, we need to be prepared for a much greater range of extremes. The Met Office projections are that Belfast will see at least 11 centimetres under the lowest emission scenarios and we're currently on projection for 94 centimetres of sea level rise by the end of the century under the current emission scenario. All of this will have an effect on how people live, work and play and we'll have to deal with a range of opportunities and challenges in related to issues, issues such as food, which we can grow locally and also what we can import. The independent climate change risk assessment from the Climate Change Commission was published today and it was supported by over 450 experts, including ourselves, and they've identified 61 risks and opportunities for the UK, of which more action is now needed for Northern Ireland to address 31 of them, and further investigation, this means the data is lacking, is urgently required for 19 of them. While many of the risks and opportunities are similar in urgency and magnitude across each UK nation, in Northern Ireland, the lower level of quality evidence available and the relatively limited climate-related policy in force increase the uncertainty around future climate range change impacts. Changing climate change conditions and extreme weather event impacts may also be exacerbated in future due to the degraded state of the natural environment and the interactions with external factors such as pollution, overfishing and land use. According to the Northern Ireland Flood Risk Assessment in 2018, approximately 45,000 properties, that's about 5% of Northern Ireland, are already at risk of significant flooding. Social disadvantage is measured through the metric of relative economic pain, which is the ratio of uninsured loss to income is greater on average in Northern Ireland than anywhere else in the UK under all of the climate scenarios today. Belfast is one of the 10 UK local authority areas which account for 50% of the socially vulnerable people living in areas at flood risk. 
third highest in the UK, while Derry and Straban is eighth highest on the social flood risk index. This is in part the reason why it is essential to have a just transition as part of the climate bill and Scottish principles of a just transition taking into account regional economies and societies. And I'm now going to hand over to Stephen for another part of our brief. Hi, yeah, thank you very much. Um, so really, we need statutory reporting mechanisms for uh, mitigation and adaptation. So these are, this also includes clear reporting and communication to the public uh, on these issues as well. Adaptation seeks to prepare for climate impacts while also accounting for uncertainties. So it's a process of continuous improvement and building resilience which matures over time. The introduction of a flexible and positive reporting for government, major public bodies, corporate actors and smaller sectoral bodies will help government understand our progress in building resilience and uh, against some of the huge and pressing issues that Jade has covered there already. Um, it allows us to build adaptive capacity, uh, which in turn plays a key role in building resilience uh, across society and that's going to be really important as we move forward. We propose that adaptation reporting should be strengthened in the climate action plans in the bill. So this could use a three-point approach to ensure that it delivers the best outcome for Northern Ireland. Um, all of this is covered in the written brief. But in short, uh, we firstly need a mandatory adaptation reporting power for major public uh, bodies here. There is no adaptation reporting power for public bodies in Northern Ireland, but there is in both the UK and the Scottish Acts, where they are able to direct major players to prepare a report. Um, so these could be, for example, local councils, uh, significant infrastructure operators and regulators, uh, and they must state then how they're progressing and resilience to climate impacts. So this process is currently voluntary in England and Wales, although the Climate Change Commission have strongly recommended that it should be mandatory, as is the case in Scotland. And of course, the definition of major players uh, can be um, amended to the thresholds and unique characteristics and scale of, of Northern Ireland. Adaptation reporting has made a significant contribution in the UK to increasing action, uh, particularly in sectors where there has been limited previous work. So a 2017 review uh, of the UK power concluded that it, quote, had raised adaptation to board level and embedded climate change risks within organisations' corporate risk management procedures, end quote. This ensures public bodies work towards understanding their climate risk and preparing their staff, their assets and their services. Uh, this systematic approach to climate change risk management across the region will help to safeguard public services and infrastructure so they're resilient to climate change. And it also helps to monitor how prepared key sectors are, as well as enabling government to track progress towards adaptation targets outside of the, uh, the department reporting, which is required under Section 60 of the UK Climate Act. So on that point, secondly, uh, monitoring and evaluation under the UK Act is currently uh, undertaken internally by government departments rather than an independent external review. In comparison, adaptation programmes in England and Scotland are subject to rigorous independent review by the Climate Change Committee. So there should be a stronger duty, we feel, in this bill uh, on all NI government departments to report on their adaptation and mitigation progress and to provide transparency by requiring independent reviews of Northern Ireland uh, adaptation programmes by an independent NI Climate Office or a UK Climate Change Expert Committee. And then thirdly and finally on this point of reporting, um, as mentioned in our written brief, we strongly recommend that there should be a programme of voluntary adaptation and mitigation reporting for civil society as well. So that's private sector, academia and community and voluntary sector. This again comes back to that capacity issue across society. Um, there's a need for greater support to enable organisations outside the public sector to report and to act on climate risk. 
So this reporting has begun in a, in a limited way through the civil society and local government adapts chapter that we developed for the most recent uh, NI climate change adaptation program. But to effectively plan and implement action at all levels, this work should be expanded to further provide support and clear progress from the most uh, from this important section of society. Um, so this would also link in then with other initiatives such as the UK Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures or TCFD, which I'm sure you've heard quite a lot about as well. Jade. Uh, Jade, okay. Jade, you're muted. Mute. <laughs> there we go. Wouldn't let me unmute. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to provide a brief feedback on the net zero question because I know you've been focusing on that as a committee. So in terms of us, the greenhouse gas emissions target for Northern Ireland should be ambitious and contribute towards the legally binding net zero UK target. So things to consider is that UK is hosting COP26 and there is significant momentum signing up all sectors of society to the race to zero and the race to resilience. 59% of actions under the CCC sixth carbon budget balance pathway require some degree of societal or behaviour change. So clear and effective communication is of the utmost importance and action needs to be front loaded to cut carbon now. The CC advisory group on the costs and benefits of net zero noted that one advantage of a net zero versus another target is that it removes uncertainty and the temptation of sectors to lobby for the larger share of the remaining emissions. The clarity of a net zero goal coupled with good policy design could help stimulate innovation across all sectors and cut the cost of capital, therefore bringing down the overall cost of mitigation. However, we recognise that CCC have provided guidance on a target for at least 82% for all greenhouse gases and with the potential for almost reaching net zero by 2050 for CO2. However, the clarity of communication of a net zero target is something to be considered, even if Wales and Scotland are currently not hitting their targets. If the government chooses an alternative to an overall net zero target, it must ensure there is a clear government vision for what share of the remaining greenhouse gas capacity is shared and by which sector. This could include net zero targets by sector where important. It is vital to consider the role of a new climate office and commission in the context of other existing and emerging governance structures and advisory bodies, such as the UK Climate Change Commission, Ireland Climate Change Advisory Council, Office for, of Environmental Protection, and the potential independent environmental protection agency called for in the new decade, new approach to enable joined up decision making and address issues where jurisdictions meet at broader border regions. It is important that the differing bodies do not duplicate effort or undermine each other while ensuring we build locally relevant expertise. Climate NI proposes the requirement that the executive will need to draft an emergency action plan if targets within a five year climate action plan are in danger of being missed. There is precedent for this annually in the latest German Federal Climate Change Act. Climate action plans must also consider climate adaptation measures, lock-in of climate risk from mitigation strategies, issues of biodiversity, water quality, soil quality, air quality, and a just transition, including reducing inequality, poverty, and social deprivation. There are potentially other measures which could be included, such as active travel infrastructure and investment targets. The non-regression clause within the climate bill is to ensure no retreat or weakening of climate and environmental protections contained in EU, EU law as it applied before the end of the Brexit transition period. In other words, the environmental laws that applied at the end of December 2020 will continue to apply in Northern Ireland and cannot be weakened. 
One of the main reasons for the inclusion of this clause relates to the general decline in biodiversity in Northern Ireland. This non-regression clause is similar to the UK provision for a non-regression statement under the Environment Bill to apply to all new Environment Bills. There is still a need to ensure that climate action plans do not lead to maladaptation or significant impacts on biodiversity. It is important the law is compatible with existing laws in place and that the right expertise is in place to review any potential transitions. So I'm going to make two very final um, but extremely important points before Kieran ends this statement. Firstly, on the role of local government, uh, the local authorities and sixth carbon budget report from the Committee on Climate Change uh, was crystal clear. This bill must make clear provision for how local authorities are included in delivery and to ensure a cohesive regional approach. Um, many councils are surging ahead at the moment, actually developing adaptation planning, but they need policy and delivery support to drive that and to empower communities. They are not currently listed as requiring sectoral climate action plans in the current bill. Perhaps this is the place for them to be included. Uh, this would be in line with the current provisions in Clause 15 of the, the current draft of the Republic of Ireland uh, Climate Bill. And secondly, a note on finance. Um, the scale of the shift on deciding acceptable levels of risk for Northern Ireland, whole life costing, public-private partnerships, green bonds, and a range of other financial issues are so great that some elements may need to be considered within the scope of this legislation uh, and not just delivery. Um, extreme events are already having significant cost implications. So one single uh, flood event in Derry City and Shaban District Council in August 2017 uh, cost central government more than £12 million but the full extent of damages to the council was never fully assessed due to gaps in data. This then has an impact on the ability to form a business case for climate action in the years ahead, perhaps leading to a lack of investment, and so the cycle goes on. So here are a few potential finance actions you could consider. Uh, firstly, it is crucial that those responsible for climate change within government uh, are also are able to scrutinise budgets, targets and uh, action across departments. So the development of NI climate adaptation programmes must have suitable resource and capacity within government and budgets available to support development of new actions and indicators. Secondly, there is a need for central pots of money, which are slow finance um, for the development of projects on clean energy, uh, retrofit recycling, things like that. So interest-free loans from bodies such as Salix Finance, which is a non-departmental public body, provide a ready source of capital and are available right across Great Britain, but not in Northern Ireland. So Salix, for example, has funded some 18,000 projects, uh, spending £971 million pounds, uh, in order to, to create a return in savings of £203 million, while saving some 867,000 tonnes of CO2 annually. So is there an existing home for this kind of activity in Northern Ireland or should it be legislated for? And very finally, uh, there could be potential screening of all government policies and capital projects for consideration of both mitigation and adaptation, with the caveat, of course, that any screening must be supported with training, resource, evidence and monitoring to avoid becoming a tick box exercise. All of this is not to mention, of course, that by demonstrating a clear direction and investing in climate action, the private sector will have a solid base and clear vision for what investments and innovations will build the Northern Ireland of the 21st century and be able to react and drive investment accordingly. So I'll hand back to Kieran for the final word. Chair, I realise that has been quite a bombardment um, and I want to just finish on the basis that our focus is about adaptation. So if all else drifts away from today's presentation, the three things that we would ask you to keep in mind, one, adaptation needs equal weight and scrutiny with mitigation in the bill. 
to prepare for impacts that we cannot now avoid. Secondly, adaptation and mitigation duty for reporting on all departments and major public bodies must be mandatory and independently reviewed. And thirdly, the role of local government needs to be considered as a sector within the legislation, both in terms of developing climate action plans, but also perhaps considering what legislative drivers are required in terms of finance for implementation of this plan. Thanks again for your time this afternoon, and we're happy to take questions. Um, thank you. That was uh, very helpful uh, and very detailed, and thanks for summarising into those points at the end, Kieran, too, which are also uh, very helpful. Um, I'll, I'll move around the room first. Uh, Claire, you're first on the last year to speak. We're a bit of interference there. If the technical people could try to seek it to be addressed. Claire, can you hear me there? Claire, you might be on mute. No, I'm not unmuted. Oh, we got you now. We hear nope. you now. <laughs> I'm never muted. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have the mute button. Now. <laughs> <laughs> thanks very much, Chair. And I really I don't want to say thanks very much to Climate NI. I mean, that was a really, really comprehensive written briefing that you've sent in as well. And absolutely, there was loads in the oral there too. And I want to also say a special thank you for the suggested amendments that you've sent through, because I find those really helpful. Um, and just as lead sponsor of the bill, declaring the interest as well, I'd be really keen to follow up with you outside of the committee if you would be willing just for a more in-depth look at those. Um, if that's okay, I'll give you a shout afterwards. But I suppose for now, I, I, I would like to ask you how you feel uh, those amendments that you're suggesting differ from what is laid out under Section 60 of the UK Climate Act, which sort of deals with all the programmes for adaptations to the climate change for Northern Ireland. And just in case I don't get back in again, we'll get timed out here by the chair. I'm going to sneak in a second one, if possible. And again, Kieran, thanks for highlighting the really pretty shocking statistics that were identified in the UK Climate Risk Independent Assessment Report that was launched today. Um, and then Stephen as well, you know, you went into a lot of detail about local government in particular. Um, but even those stats that we were say, seeing this morning, I mean, they're even shocking in our own Northern Ireland track record terms, you know, and we've been consistently poor. So I'd like to know if you'd have any thoughts of what kind of capacity building or development of expertise uh, needs to happen across Northern Ireland, whether in um, central or local governments and departments, but also in public bodies. Jay, do you want to go first on that? Yeah, that's okay. So on the very first point that you raised, Claire, in terms of us being able to give you a meeting and sort of go through some of our points in more detail, that's no problem. Yes, we'll sort that out. And in terms of the next bit on Section 60, so Section 60 is the part of the UK Climate Act which deals with Northern Ireland in relation to adaptation. And it is a bit limited in terms of scope. It's what we have to do at the moment. So 
in terms of what it says, it's the duty of the of the relevant Northern Ireland Department to lay programmes before the Northern Ireland Assembly, setting out the objectives of the department in relation to adaptation to climate change, the department's proposals and policies for meeting those objectives, and the timescales for introducing those policies and, and proposals, and an assessment of the progress made towards implementing objectives, proposals and policies set out in earlier programmes. So there's a couple of things which are absent from that. So the duty only sits with the relevant Northern Ireland Department, and we recommend that it should co cover all all departments because climate change is not just a your department part it covers all of them and is relevant to all of them and they should all be on top of this and finding out what's happening so that's important so that's why we suggest about the adaptation reporting power which uh, emanates at this act from England but sits with the Secretary of State for state for Northern Ireland rather than with the Assembly at the moment so that's something to think about. The assessment of this reporting is not required currently to be independent which is not something Northern Ireland is missing in comparison with the other countries within the other regions or countries within the UK so that is something that's really important because the Climate Change Commission have provided really good rigorous feedback um, on how the actions that are being planned to take or have been taken actually impact on that risk, which you've seen from the report this morning, there is significant risk and less data here for Northern Ireland. So without that assessment, reportment can remain quite loose in terms of iterative adaptation processes, budgets and requirements, and it might not respond to all the risks, which is also important to respond across all the risks. And there's no assessment of the linkages between adaptation and mitigation, because quite often there's an interplay between the two. Uh, just to give an example of Scotland, Section 53 of the Climate Change Scotland Act 2009 requires Scottish ministers to lay a programme before the Scottish Parliament that sets out. So apart from their objectives and proposals, but they also say the arrangements for involving employers, trade unions and other stakeholders in meeting those objectives and the mechanisms for ensuring public engagement in meeting those objectives. And also the period, so it gives a time frame within which they have to be introduced. Um, so and then they have to report on a similar scale to us, to the UK government as well. And that has been built on with, um, they've then got a duty of public bodies reporting requirements order, which came out in 2015, and they amended that in 2020 as well. So they're also to look at for the range of public bodies that they include when you're considering who our major bodies are over here. And now- Did you pick up on capacity building there, Stephen? I can pick up, yeah, I'll pick up briefly on the second point. So again, I've thrown a lot of information at you there today. So hopefully, hopefully that was clear enough and happy to follow up, of course. Um, so I suppose, you know, as I say, this is pretty transformative action that's required. Um, so in terms of the capacity in government, um, obviously there's really important role for that independent body. So whether that is the CCC going forward or the, the climate commissioner is listed in the bill, um, whatever role that might take, it's really important that the folks who are responsible for climate change in government itself can also have oversight of the budgets um, and targets and action across the other departments. So that also links to the point that Jade just made as well, so the building the capacity in government to actually do that uh, as well. Um, I think probably also there's, there's a need for like a coordinated network of practitioners and experts more generally in Northern Ireland on this. Um, so time and resource uh, within government is also an extremely important uh, piece of the puzzle. I mean, this may ex include, for example, expanding a central program of technical climate expertise, um, which could be accessed by public bodies such as local authorities. Um, I think it's also extremely important that there's a communications element to this. So that would be both within departments and also for the general public as well. So that there's a real need to build capacity uh, right across society to ensure that the 59% of behavioral change actions um, are more likely to take place essentially. Um, 
So just very finally, I suppose there's a range of um, capacity building actions across other uh, jurisdictions. The Republic of Ireland are currently training every single person in their local authorities um, on climate change. Uh, the Future Generations uh, of Wales office have produced a 10-point plan on funding the climate emergency through their public sector. Um, there is a programme of climate literacy across uh, the full department of BASE uh, in England. And um, yeah, so the, the, there's, there's lots of kind of training. I think also the finance and the, the evidence base um, are also notable kind of absences in, in some respects as well. So again, lots of information, but uh, hopefully that answers some of your questions. Don't worry. Okay, just just to finish off on that one, Chair, um, data and evidence is also a really important important piece of this jigsaw. You know, if we're if we're trying to kind of guess where we are, um, we're always going to be uh, you know facing uh, challenges as to whether this is the right thing. Are we doing the right thing? Are we not? Are we being successful? We need to invest in getting the the, the data and evidence in place, and it's not one of those things. in in the, in the past up until now. It's been sort of like the loose change down the back of the sofa has been thrown at this stuff. And that just doesn't cut it. You know, if we're going to address these things seriously, there has to be a budget line to it. And, and just picking up on Claire's point about the, the, the shockingly bad figures, they're no surprise. You know, we look at a three-year period of new government where policies effectively were put on the shelf that would have maybe made a difference. And you know, we've been hit with like, a bombarded with consultations at the moment because suddenly this backlog is starting to kind of come through, which is great to see, but it does mean that very little has happened. And even, even within my own world of, you know, building regulations being the worst in Northern Ireland across most of Europe, um, retrofit program doesn't really exist in any, in any shape or form at the moment and certainly hasn't. And transport, I mean, what have we done in, in transport in the last 10 years to, to transform things? I mean, almost nothing is the, is the answer. So those figures are just the outworking of those failures across a number of years. Okay. Okay. And we'll just move around here to uh, the next, Philip. Thanks. Philip. Thank you. Uh, and thanks very much for the presentation. It, I mean, it really, we say this all the time, but that, that was really informative and, and genuinely. So it's, it's kind of presentation you probably have to watch back again, uh, just to absorb all, all that was said. So, as Claire said, it was very useful. Uh, suggestions for amendments also very, very useful. In terms of, I mean, the CCC advisory group uh, on the costs and benefits of net zero state that a net zero target provided clarity to sectors, could stimulate innovation and cut the cost of capital as well as the overall cost of mitigation. Yet, in the CCC's sixth carbon report, you know, for the North, they recommended an 82% reduction by 2050. And you might not want to answer this, but I'm going to ask regardless. You know, do you believe a net zero target is achievable? Uh, and on balance, do you believe a, this bill or a bill put forward uh, with net zero would do more good pursuing net zero than, than 82%? And then just secondly, in, in your written submission and your, and your uh, verbal presentation, you, know, you stated time and time again that uh, front loading was important, uh, you no know, cuts uh, made later are more expensive and actions need to be front loaded. I mean, do you consider this private members bill as a good example of, of being able to achieve uh, early front loading? That's me. Did, did you want to tackle that one first? 
<laughs> um, well, I was going to pass it to Stephen for the uh, the net zero part because we've uh, we've tagged that as a uh, Stephen. But yes, in terms of front loading, that's essential. And whatever target that happens, what what we really want to emphasise is the fact that you need to get on with it um, because the whole point is there's you know seven years left of carbon budget, and we have basically you know, we need to get on with it and start cutting carbon now. The fact that only 1% was cut between 2018 and 2019, the front loading, all the hard work needs to happen now. So you've got the option of other opportunities later if you want. So, so yes, I mean, in terms of we need legislation, that's kind of underpinning everything else. So we really do want the climate bill in as soon as possible. And I'm going to pass over to Stephen to discuss Briefly. Yeah, I, I think very briefly, just from uh, some of the discussion I've heard around the, the bill in the Republic of Ireland, they haven't specified a trajectory for emissions impact. So I think there was a few folks maybe concerned that that could be pushed right back and back and back. And then by the time you quickly dip in emissions at the end, the cumulative emissions over those years that you haven't been doing as much mean that actually you're pretty much cancelled out any positive benefit there, you know. So um, there are some of those uh, aspects to consider. Um, I think the, the Climate Change Commission, look, are the, the recognised experts in the UK. Um, with the current levels of evidence, their scenario predictions are the best predictions that we have. And that's an uncomfortable you know, truth looking at some of this. I think that it's worthwhile really thinking about the clarity of uh, sectoral net zero targets. Uh, you know, either way, I think that or, or at least a clear vision on exactly where some of that remaining uh, budget is going to be spent uh, to avoid folks, you know, maybe not not meeting the full targets. Um, but as you say, as you had said, look at the, the figures that came out yesterday, um, they're completely going in the wrong direction. And so I would say, you know, doing nothing now is the wrong move. Whatever whatever we do, we need to start cutting carbon and building resilience now. And so I suppose, I suppose, Chair, the key thing is, is the target the most important thing? A target which is 30, 30 years away, is that going to be the, the be-all and end-all? Ultimately, no, because action needs to be taken in this five, seven, ten-year period to dramatically change things. So that's number one. Uh, second of all, Climate and I is a very broad church, and um, I suppose we need to be careful, the three of us here today, in not trying to represent uh, everybody's view, and, and, and we, we haven't had the chance to go back after the most recent uh, round of evidence on this to check in with everybody to what the views are. One thing I do find very interesting is that in in the, the it's often stated that Northern Ireland is very heavily reliant on agriculture and therefore it needs to be treated a bit differently. Uh, and I think it's important that we look at the Republic of Ireland and look at its its reliance on agriculture, where thirty three percent of greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture sector, but yet it's been deemed possible to set a target of a net zero carbon target of 2050. Now, perhaps that's more about messaging than anything else. And Jade touched upon it in, in, her, in her oral briefing there, that sometimes you need to have that clarity of purpose, a goal that we can all rally around. And having some clarity around uh, 2050 and net zero is a very clear, clean message. Okay, thank you for that, uh, Philip. Okay, uh, that was extremely um, very good, uh, Jade, Kieran, and uh, Stephen. Uh, very informative, very helpful, and there's some great some great ideas there that you raised with us. And I look forward to um, engaging with you again. That was extremely helpful. So 
Thank you very much. And we will be in contact with you as the um, legislative process unfolds for this, okay? So thank you. Thank Take you care. Sir. All the best. Thank you very much. Cheers. Good luck. Okay. Um, okay, members. Um, I'm going to, can we get agreement to publish the claimant NA briefing on the uh, committee webpage? Okay. Okay, members, um, item, item eight here now is the uh, Horse Racing uh, Amendment Bill 2021. Research paper is at page 94. And we have Mark Allen here on Starleaf. Mark, uh, do you want to brief the committee on this? Good morning. Thank you, Chair. Can you hear me? Yes, Chair. Yes, Mark, we got you. Thank you, uh, Chair. I realize that you're tight for time on it, so I'm, I'm going to try and condense the presentation. As, as you said, the, the uh, paper is found in pages 94 to 108 in your pack. Um, as I say, I'm really just probably going to focus on the, the actual issues, maybe one or two contextual things, and then I'm quite happy to take questions. Um, I suppose the, the first thing to say, I suppose you're, you're well aware of the rationale for the bill the department has brought in relation to uh, enable payments uh, to the, the two race course operators uh, at Down Royal uh, and Down Patrick. The, the horse racing fund uh, approximate income is about £350,000 a year. Uh, there have been no payments made from that fund uh, since 2019, which, uh, as you will remember from the departmental presentation a number of weeks ago, there's reckoned to be about £680,000 in the fund at the minute. Two reasons that fund hasn't been able to pay out. Firstly, there was the change of ownership that occurred at Down Royal Racecourse on the 1st of January 2019. And secondly, uh, in relation to Down Patrick Race Club, who are a named beneficiary of the, the fund, um, that wasn't able to progress as the department were actually seeking EU state aid approval for the fund, which uh, they then withdrew. And I suppose at the period we're at now, we're, we're actually post uh, EU state aid implications for ourselves uh, because the transition period ended and the protocol doesn't apply. So that's, I suppose, just a very quick um, reason for the the outline of the reasons for the bill. In terms of the specific content of the bill, again, I'm not going to really dwell because I will come to this on the issues, but you can see really um, on pages 101 to 102 of your pack, I set out the actual clauses uh, within the table. Uh, and it's really, I suppose, particularly clauses one to three that deal with the actual changes which the bill is proposing to the 1990 order. Um, clause one really, I suppose, looks at the, the horse race course operators, which is the substantive part around, I suppose, uh, changing the definition to enable the new operator um, at Down Royal uh, to, to access the fund. And clause two, I suppose, looks really at, at the more general issues pertaining to the horse racing fund and its operation. And then there's a number of minor and consequential amendments which are made uh, through the provisions of clause three. I do want to say a wee bit just in relation to the public consultation. Um, the proposals were consulted on uh, on the 12th of May 2020 uh, and closed on the 25th of June 2020. Um, this was the consultation document at that time explicitly identified the purpose of the public consultation as being to seek views on a proposed amendment to the name of the beneficiaries of the horses and fund so that the current operators of Down Royal Racecourse were eligible to uh, for support under the fund. Uh, it's also, I think, useful to just to highlight the fact that as well as looking at that specific issue, the consultation document also gave respondents the opportunity to comment on wider aspects around the operation of the fund and indeed the order. There were a, a total of 11 written responses. Um, and with regard to the proposed amendment uh, of the name beneficiaries, 
Uh, six respondents were fully in favour. I've listed those there. Three gave their qualified agreement to their proposal, and there were two respondents who were against it, and those were the, the, the Northern Ireland Turf Guardians Association and Ladbrokes. Uh, the range of issues identified by those who were either opposing um, the proposed uh, amendment or who gave their qualified support are set out there uh, on pages 103 to 104. Uh, and I suppose those really, in summary, did look at things like, well, look, this is a change from a, a not-for-profit to a, for, uh, a profit-taking uh, company in relation uh, to the new owners of Down Royal. Uh, and there were others, I suppose, who thought that this was actually constituted a substantive change and as such, shouldn't simply be done through an amendment. Uh, there were also concerns raised about EU state aid eligibility. As I say, those have, have passed. Um, and there was maybe some circumstances as well where people were concerned um, that uh, the corporation, for example, who were the previous operators, said, well, why can't we continue uh, to be uh, involved as potential beneficiaries uh, and a new uh, category of beneficiary created? Other wider issues raised by respondents included, and this is very brief, a need for reform of current gambling legislation, which I know um, is on the horizon, for example, in relation to the, the Minister for Communities. Um, there was also issues raised around a need to look at both the how the horse race fund was funded and how other income streams could be developed. There were also specific questions around the, the operation of the levy on, on bookmakers, uh, which is the, the source of income for the fund. Really, a number of issues are around the rates, whether it was a, a flat rate or it was margin-related, uh, and there were also differences between on-course and off-course. And there was also a, a general question asked around whether uh, DERA should actually have responsibility for the operation of the fund, given the, the wider gambling legislation sits, as I said, with the Department for Communities. I have included, but I'm, I'm not going to dwell on them for the sake of time, the actual um, horse race funding provisions in neighbouring jurisdictions, really GB and, and Ireland. And those are on, on pages 104 and 5 in Table 2. Um, you can see, I suppose, in, in each of the other jurisdictions, there, there are actually greyhound provisions. Uh, down south, those are incorporated. And in England, there's a separate greyhound fund. I know that was one of the issues that we maybe will come back to uh, as I, I make a number of comments here. But useful just for comparative means as well to get an idea how those funds are actually resourced, how their levies operate, and how they actually allocate funding. Um, just then turning then to potential issues um, for consideration in relation to the bill. And this is really pages 105 to 108 in your packet. The first thing I want to look at is really, I suppose, the limited scope of the bill to deal with wider issues. And I suppose, as, as previously highlighted, um, the bill as it stands is a largely technical amendment of the 1990 horse racing order. And it's largely focused on changes to the name beneficiaries of the horse racing fund. Um, within that context and cognizant of the, the range of issues raised through the public consultation exercise, and indeed through work I did looking at existing provisions in neighboring jurisdictions, Members might wish to establish DERA's plans with regard to either a wider review or amendment of the 1990 order in a number of areas, um, which I would suggest is as follows. Firstly, the potential for the horse racing fund or a successor fund to provide support for activities such as greyhound racing and point-to-point -point horse racing. Secondly, the potential for the horse racing fund or a successor fund to incorporate specific Dedicated and explicit provisions, maybe for animal welfare in relation to purposes for which resources within the fund could or should be utilised. That's something that is starting to happen in GB. Um, there's also the, the concept of the potential for the funding model uh, of the horse racing fund or a successor fund to be changed 
from the current flat rate fee system to something more akin with the model deployed maybe in GB or Ireland as set out in Table 2. Now, that would, of course, have to include a potential revision to the horse rate racing uh, charges and bookmakers order uh, for Northern Ireland 2010. Additionally, and as I, I highlighted earlier, there may be merit in seeking Dara's views on the potential for any changes from their proposed uh, reform of the betting, gaming, lotteries and amusements, Northern Ireland Order 1985, which Minister Hargey um, ordered uh, and announced, I suppose, in, in May 2021. I think more specifically, I think it would be useful to know, does Dara envisage any potential change to the definition of a bookmaker in the 1985 order? And has there, for example, been any assessment as to the potential consequential impacts on the budget of the horses and fund? I'm thinking probably more particularly in, in relation to online bookmakers. Um, who currently don't obviously fall within the, the auspices of uh, the horses uh, racing fund and as, as funders for it. Secondly, I just want to look then at, at some potential state aid or, or more accurately subsidy issues. Um, it would appear, as I said, that the horse racing fund no longer needs to be compliant with EU state aid rules uh, because the UK Brexit transition period has now ended and the Ireland Northern Ireland Protocol state aid requirements will not apply to it. Now, those developments are significant, as, as Dara had previously I said, been seeking a decision from the European Commission on a stated application to enable the, the horse racing fund to continue to operate. There are, however, uh, potential questions with regards to compliance with the new state aid, uh, UK state aid framework uh, that's a, a, administered by the UK Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. More specifically, I think there's a need to identify the following. Firstly, um, the UK-EU Trade and Cooperation Agreement sets out a series of principles that need to be adhered to with regards to subsidies that exceed more than 325,000 so-called special drawn rights, which is roughly equivalent to 350,000 pounds being given to a single beneficiary over three years. And it was the, the key question there is, does DARA believe that the horse racing fund would be required to adhere to the public subsidy principles that are central to the UK um, EU TCA? Additionally, uh, Bay's advice reveals that public authorities can still pay out subsidies under previously approved schemes, as these would be in line with the principles, which raises the, the obvious question as to whether the horse racing fund qualifies as a previously approved scheme. Uh, further, if the horse racing fund was previously an approved scheme, would the proposed changes within the bill alter that status? Also think there might be merit in actually seeing, uh, and seeking the views of Dara um, as to whether the horse racing fund does, um, is there a confident that the horse racing fund as it stands meets all of the six identified principles, which are subsidy principles that the UK EU TCA requires? I've set them out there. I'm not going to read through them. But um, Bayes guidance published in, in December suggested that a failure to comply with all six principles could leave a public body awarding a subsidy open to the risk of judicial review. And I suppose the question is, is that an issue that Dara has had any concerns around in bringing forward the horse racing amendment bill as it pertains to the horse racing fund? Thirdly, then, I want to look just at, at powers for the department to amend the definition of a horse race course operator. And paragraph four within clause one of the bill makes it clear that Dara will have powers to amend the definition of horse race course operator as it thinks appropriate through the introduction of regulations, which would be subject to assembly approval. Um, whilst the logic of including that provision seems sound in light of the current issues brought about by the, the change of ownership of Down Royal, it would be useful to establish the exact means by which assembly approval would be sought. 
More specifically, it would be useful if Derek could clarify if the approach being advocated is a draft affirmative procedure. Additionally, it would be useful for DERA to outline the potential circumstances under which any regulations could or would be utilised. For instance, could the regulations be used to add new beneficiaries to the horse racing fund? Or would that be something that would only be done through a wider review of the 1990 order? Fourthly, I just want to look at um, additions to the provisions around statements. Article 3 of the Horse Racing Northern, Northern Ireland Order 1990 set out the basis for the operation and access in the funds within the Horse Racing Fund. And in particular, paragraph four states the following, the corporation and the company shall on or before the 31st of October and each year submit to the department a statement of the proposed budget and expenditure plans of the corporation and the company for the year commencing on 1st January next following. Clause two of the actual bill before you uh, actually proposes the introduction of an additional paragraph 4A uh, as follows, which would be a horse race course operator may submit a statement under paragraph four, either on its own or together with any of the other race with any other race course operator, it would be useful, I think, for Dara to answer a number of questions around the rationale for the, the new paragraph. Um, namely, what was the approach taken by both the corporation and the company historically? I.e., did they generally submit a joint statement to the department? Were there any instances where the corporation or company submitted separate statements to the department? To paragraph four within Article three of the 1980 order. Uh, explicitly prohibit submission of separate statements by the corporation or company? Does the proposed addition of paragraph 4A suggest that there may not be a collaborative working relationship between the race course operators at Down Royal and Down Patrick going forward? And building on the previous point, would the submission of separate statements present challenges to DERA? Furthermore, what process or criteria does DERA use to allocate funds to the race course operators? Is there an equitable split? And would the facility of separate statements raise the possibility of both race course operators competing against each other and their applications for support under the fund, particularly if it was an open call, if there wasn't an allocating formula? Finally, I just want to go on into the uh, final point is that the omission of Article 3, Paragraph 6 from the 1990 order. Paragraph 6 of Article 3 within the um, 1990 order provided a means for DERA to make payments from the horse racing fund for the Irish Turf Club. This provision only applied to funds being used to provide or supplement uh, prize money. And clause two, paragraph seven of the bill uh, before you now proposes the omission of this provision. There could undoubtedly be a sound logic to that decision because the, the Irish Turf Club ceased to exist in 2018 and was then replaced by the Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board. It could nonetheless be useful to get answers to a number of questions as follows. Firstly, how commonly was the option to pass monies from the horse racing fund to the Irish Turf Club utilised? And secondly, what has determined Dara's decision to omit the provision rather than seek to update or change the name of the potential beneficiary to either the horse racing, Irish Horse Racing Regulatory Board or another body? Chair, that is a very quick fly through. Um, I'm more than happy to take any questions, uh, but thank you for your time. Uh, Mark, uh, thank you very much for that there. Um, very detailed piece of work on briefing, uh, as as always. Um, I say we, we've had this in the chamber uh, a a number of times and your um your your input here today has been has been um really helpful. Um I think that uh, I don't have any members who who want to ask any specific questions on it. Um I say We've read it, and most of us have participated in the bit, the debate on this as well. So, Mark, I just want to uh, thank you, thank you very much for uh, attending here this afternoon, um, and for your for your um, for providing your your briefing paper. Okay, thank you, Chair.
And uh, sorry, I should say as well, I'm just going to just admit you want to be online that uh, so the public, we're doing a, we're moving ahead then with the page 109 in our pack is a public notice, which starts at page 116. Uh, I'm sorry, um, Mark, or not Mark, uh, Nick, the clerk, do you want to give the committee a quick briefing on the work plan on the committee stage for the horse racing amendment bill? Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Yes, um, just refer members to the um, memo in the packet, page 109, <coughs> excuse me, which sets out really following Mark's briefing on the proposed way forward to get a uh, call for evidence on the horse racing amendment bill. So I'll not go through um, the, the detail that Mark so comprehensively covered, but ostensibly this is a piece of legislation which is largely technical in nature. Um, and the ultimate goal is to facilitate resumption of payments from the horse racing fund to Down Roa and Down Patrick. Now, of course, in Mark's briefing, he did touch on a, a wide range of issues um, that the committee may wish to take uh, into consideration before it lays its uh, final report. Um, but within the memo, at page 110, I've outlined a proposed way forward with regards to how the committee may wish to um, gather evidence on the on the amendment bill um, so a proposed way forward is obviously we've had the raise briefing um, scheduled today um, and it is suggested that now going forward that the committee team would facilitate a written call for evidence over the summer period to allow interested stakeholders to give their feedback um, and if members are content, given our recent um, experiences and success with using the citizens-based platform um, to call for evidence on the climate change bill, um, the, the proposal would be that we also use citizens-based to um, collate evidence from stakeholders on the horse racing amendment bill. Um, it is proposed that we would make that live from the 23rd of June until the 20th of August, so for a period of eight weeks. And the reason why that suggested time frame is put forward is because um, it's recognised that obviously that will hit the peak holiday time and it will be less than ideal um, to collect evidence. Um, but nevertheless, that time frame is proposed so that the committee team can gather all um, submissions um, before resumption of the assembly in the autumn time. And hopefully we will be in a, a well-informed position for the committee to um, finalise its, its, its considerations on this bill um, towards late September. Um, just also to say, given the narrow and fairly technical scope of the bill, we're not anticipating a very large response to the call for evidence. Could be proven wrong, but um, we're really expecting just a very small number of interested stakeholders um, to, to give their feedback. And it's proposed that we will, via the Assembly's communications team, um, put out a public notice in the, in the major newspapers about our call for evidence and the committee team will also send out the consult, the call for evidence link to a targeted list of stakeholders, which is an appendix one to the memo um, via email. Um, in terms of the questions that we would propose to ask um, stakeholders about, obviously about the primary objectives of the bill and whether stakeholders agree with the objectives to change the named operator of Down Royal Race Course and to enable resumptions of uh, payments from the fund. Um, we will also propose to ask stakeholders um, if they agree with the proposed amendments to change the definition 
of a horse race course operator within the bill and their views on this. Um, as Mark touched on in his briefing, we'll also ask stakeholders' opinion about the proposal to bring about any future changes to a resolution of the Assembly um, and of the amendments within uh, with the wording in the bill that will allow the race courses to submit financial statements together. Um, and of course, then we will also give stakeholders the opportunity um, to, uh, via an additional information question, to provide any views, comments or feedback that they feel the committee should be aware of. Um, the committee team also proposes that we would schedule a small number of stakeholders to brief the committee orally in September, and that may include the department and representatives, um, representative owners from Down Royal and Down Patrick Racecourses at a minimum. Um, so, Chair and members, if uh, members are, are content with that plan, um, the committee team is happy to facilitate that and um, take forward the, the actions with the um, Citizen Space site and the Assembly Communications team. Thank you, Chair. Yeah, and Nick, also a signposting ad in the papers, is that right as well? Yeah, yes, yes, Chair, that is correct. Um, so, on page 116, of the of the pack there is the proposed um signposting ad which will go into the irish news the newsletter and the belfast telegraph i did discuss this matter with the assembly communications manager and we felt that given the the relatively narrow scope of this legislation that a, a wider engagement strategy probably wasn't warranted in this in in this aspect um, and felt that simply go on with the default signposting would, would be sufficient. Okay, members okay with that proposed course of action? Okay. Okay, I'm going to jump back now to item number six before before we go to uh, correspondence. Let's see, uh, monthly update, the uh, written briefing COVID-19 monthly update. That's at page 41. Um, there's a couple of uh, sort of headline points that you might want to consider. Uh, the rollout of the £60 uh, payment to 1,600 Catholic students to help address digital poverty. The members, could you just mute there, somebody is? Uh, the confirmation that £23.5 million has been paid from the COVID-19 incomes, of course, given to 11,500 farmers. The department is bringing forward secondary legislation to the committee on the 24th of June, which is next week, to enable compensatory payment to sheep, pig and potato farmers following the losses associated with COVID-19. COVID the Environment Agency and Queen's are currently taking forward a COVID-19 surveillance scheme in wastewater uh, outlets. And the department's latest COVID-19 environmental impacts dashboard highlights that in 2020, there was a significant drop in NO2 levels compared to the previous years and an increase in reports of waste crime. Um, members, if you have any questions relating to that monthly report there from the department, could you please uh, throw it on, fire it on to... Um, to Nick at your earliest opportunity. Uh, members, jumping back now to item nine on the agenda is the correspondence, uh, page 121 on your agenda, uh, on your packs. Are members okay that we action the correspondent as suggested on the index page, 118? Okay. Um, for work program, page 188, uh, we have two stakeholder events for the climate change bill uh, taking place tomorrow. Uh, from 10 at, at 10 o'clock and at 6.30 p.m. Members will be emailed and the relevant details on the Zoom platform will be used for these events. Uh, I want to remind members there will also be an additional virtual meeting on the 23rd of June, which is this day week, at half past two, to discuss 
and agree the report on the investigation into the security issue at the ports. I want vice members that the meeting on the 8th of July will feature an oral briefing from the department on the consultation on the eradication of TB, which the department hopes to run over the summer period. And uh, Claire, do you want to bring uh, a question there? On the, oh, sorry, come to any of our business. Sorry, can I seek agreement in the FARB work programme? Okay. Okay, members, I'm just coming to AOB, and Claire has indicated she wants to raise a question under any of our business. Thanks, Chair. And it's to do with the um, sessions tomorrow with the stakeholders on the, the climate bill. Um, and I know that there are, I know we're limited in getting everybody in, but I was wondering if, if um, at this stage, whether anybody else can be invited. I know that, for example, Farmers for Action want to be included in discussion. Um, and well, that's just one to name, but there are a few others. But I just don't know how that process might work or if it's too late. Mel, Nick. Nick, you're muted. You're muted, Nick. Apologies, I muted myself. Um, Claire, uh, uh, yes, Claire, um, we can try and get an invite to them for the 10 o'clock session. Um, uh, I can see if we can do that immediately. Now, we did issue it out to that full range of lists, so I hope that, um, I hope we haven't missed anybody on that, but I will do endeavour to try and get an invite out to them this afternoon and see if they are available for that 10 o'clock session. Very much Is that farmers, and farmers for Action in particular, Claire, or are there others? I'll follow up with you, maybe Nick in the background. Okay. Uh, I'll have a wee chat, but I know that they were very keen to um, attend tomorrow. Okay. We'll do our best. Okay. Okay, members, so apart from the two stakeholder events tomorrow, uh, the next meeting of the committee will take place this day week, which is Wednesday. Uh, the 23rd of June at half past two. So, folks, uh, take care and stay safe until then, and we'll adjourn the meeting. Okay, folks? Take care. Thanks very much. Bye now. Take care. Bye-bye.